Hi, I'm Mark, and welcome to Talk to the Bands, the podcast that is passionate about contemporary music. Today's episode is the second half of an interview with Tessa Niles, the UK vocalist who has performed and recorded with some of music's greatest stars, including Eric Clapton, George Harrison, David Bowie, Tina Turner, The Police, Robbie Williams, and many more. In 2015, she released a book called Backtrack, the voice behind music's greatest stars, which is a star-studded account of a 30-year career working alongside some of music's greatest names in rock and pop. Hi, and welcome to the second part of our Tessa Niles interview. If you haven't listened to the first part of this interview, please do so as it will make a lot more sense. And if you enjoyed last week's episode, please do share it on social media with your friends and family and help us get the word out there. And now, back to the interview. And then Eric reaches out to his friend George Harrison and persuades him to join him on a tour of Japan. And that must have been 25 years since George was last there with the Beatles. It was an incredibly long time. And and I think um, the last time George had really toured was in the 70s. I think it was the Dark Horse Tour, something like that. Um, And he hadn't had a a great experience. It wasn't something that he looked back on with fondness. And he was very nervous about singing live, losing his voice again. You know, he was very worried about that because I think he possibly did first time around. So he had all sorts of trepidation, but Eric had said to him, ah, come on, George, you know, use my band. Let's do it. You know, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. And it was fine. It was more than fine. It was amazing. It just a wonderful experience to be. And George, oh my gosh, what an incredible man. Just, just fabulous. Yeah. Loved working with George. So George Harrison hadn't been to Japan for over 25 years. Last time he was there would have been with the Beatles. How were Eric and George received when they first landed in Japan? Yeah, very different to what I had imagined, to be honest with you. But I was used to going to Japan with Eric pretty much on a yearly basis. He would always go and do uh, a tour of Japan around November, December time. And it was a tradition in a way there. And uh, he was always incredibly well received and the tours were, were really successful. But George, as you say, hadn't been back since those mad days where they were holed up in uh, in the capital Tokyo Hotel in the 60s. And they couldn't get out because, you know, there was all sorts of controversy around that time with him and the Beatles in Japan. And in fact, we even stayed in the same hotel because he wanted to go back and just, and I don't think it had been changed. It was literally the interior was still the same and it was all it was all a bit of a flashback for him. But yeah, so this was the first time George was going back. And we only got a glimpse of how important it was for the Japanese people when we arrived at Narita Airport. And to be honest with you, Eric was pretty much ignored <laughs> because the public was so, you know, the, the press was so used to seeing Eric once a year. And, and you know, he was a familiar face in, in Japan and uh, was always there. But George was, I mean, he had a godlike status. He really did. And so... <laughs> So the press just swamped George and pretty much let Eric walk through with barely a photo. So I think it was at that point when that we all thought, oh, okay, this is this is a bit special. George was just so loved. Whenever I read anyone's bios, nobody's got anything bad to say about George. He seems to be loved by every person he's ever come into contact with. Yeah. 
There was something about him having this almost kind of Peter Pan hasn't really grown up in in the sense of he's so youthful. He was so mischievous and so lovely. I mean, he really made you feel that he was interested in in you. Um, took the time to kind of ask about you. Just genuinely a lovely man. And I think he always had that humble kind of self-effacing quality of feeling like he happened to be in the Beatles just in the right place at the right time. You know, that he was nothing special, but he just was so lucky to have, you know, been there at that right time. And and it, it was a lovely quality in him. It made him very humble, made him very approachable. And um, yeah, it's just a lovely man. Can we talk about George's memorial concert? An incredible concert at the Royal Albert Hall. The lineup for that was astronomical. There must be so many mixed emotions. You've got these incredible musicians. I can only imagine that the emotions must have been going overtime. Yeah, they they were. Right from the, again, the rehearsal period is is so much part of these actual gigs because it's the coming together, it's the piecing together of you know, what you're going to sing, what you're going to perform, um, how you're going to do it. But I think that general, and Eric steered it beautifully um, in the right direction. It was his way of honouring George and honouring his friend was to bring together the people that George most love. Because George was hilarious. In some ways, he would have hated all the fuss. (laughs) You know, he probably would have said in that Liverpudlian drawl, you know, I don't know what all the fuss is about, you know. (laughs) <laughs> could have come around to my place, you know. Um, he just, he was just like that. But it was, Eric worked very closely with George's widow, Olivia, and they designed the show to be the ultimate tribute. And the, and as you say, the personnel were ridiculous. It was insane. Uh, with McCartney and uh, you had Tom Petty and, and all the people, you know, because of course um, George was involved with travelling Wilburys. Yeah. That was a big, big part of his career as well, that he absolutely loved. And great music came out of that. And so, yeah, as I say, Eric put it together beautifully. And once we got to the Albert Hall on the day, there was this gigantic photo of um, of George kind of suspended at the back near where the organ is, uh, the Albert Hall. And we literally felt his spirit. It's, it's you know, I'm, I'm pretty much an atheist when it comes to religious beliefs, but you could not not feel it. It was, he was there. We were, his spirit was there. It was everywhere. And, and there were so many points that night where it was truly emotional and beautiful. And the audience, of course, was so part of that and they felt it. I think what speaks volumes about that as well, and George, is... As you said, you have people like Paul McCartney, obviously Ringo, Eric Clapton, even Jeff Lynne was there. But they were having to turn people away. So many people wanted to be involved that they couldn't obviously physically have more. And these weren't, you know, just anybody. These are huge names in the industry. Just so many people felt they wanted to be part of it. It's incredible. No, it's absolutely true. People would come to rehearsals. They were coming to the sort of back door saying, hey, hey, man, any room at the inn? 
you know. And and the, we were already, if you watch the concert, there were already so many people on stage. It must have been the sound man's nightmare trying to <laughs> trying to get everyone, you know, mic'd up. Yeah, but it was a beautiful, beautiful concert, and it was filmed. It, it looks beautiful as well as sounds beautiful. So I would highly recommend anyone who hasn't seen it to uh, to investigate. Now, we were talking about Tina Turner earlier, and shortly after the George Harrison Memorial Concert, you got to record Simply the Best with Tina Turner. That was the first time you've actually met Tina, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was because the recording process is very fragmented very often, unless it's a live album. Um, You know, people go in and they do their bits singularly. So very often the artist had been in and done their stuff and already gone, you know, weeks before that I I ever get there. And very often backing vocals are some of the last things to be recorded on a track. Um, As a good friend of mine, Chris Kimsey, the producer, used to say, um, it was like having the fairy dust sprinkled on top of the track when the the backing singers would come in, which is a a nice thing because it is a a nice colour to to add the backing vocals. Um, and so, yeah, that was the first time I'd ever met her. And she was, yeah. How do you describe Tina Turner? She, She's a legend. We all know that. But her energy and her charisma is just off the charts. She's, you know, you walk into a room and it's like a thousand light bulbs go off. And you realise you're in the presence of greatness. Can you tell us about the Bunyan story? <laughs> I have no idea how this came about, but we started talking in a break. We started talking about bunions. Hmm. And she, well, yeah, I mean, I describe it better in the book, actually, because I don't tell you it's a story about bunions. But she just started saying, yeah, I, I like to slice them when they're warm, just straight out of the bath. I was like, what? And then I caught on to the conversation and um, she was asking me how I removed mine. And I I just had to admit that I didn't really suffer from bunions, you know. But then I kind of thought about her career and thought, you know what? A life in high heels, she's got decades on me. There's nothing she probably doesn't know about bunions. But interesting that she was asking me how to remove them. Just shows how grounded she was. Oh, completely completely yeah there was nothing there's no she is her you know she it's that wonderful situation where you where someone is so comfortable in their own skin they know who they are don't have to impress anyone there's nothing they need to be other than truly themselves and that's a wonderful uh energy to be around we're going to go from one persona to another none other than mr robbie williams now, you were lucky enough to, was it Rock DJ, the first recording you did with Robbie Williams? It was. And, and you know, Mark, it's one of those other moments, and, and I've been so fortunate to have had them during my life, is that, you know, you don't know the impact of what you're doing until it's passed, until the record actually is made and it comes out and it's received, and then next thing you know, it's all over the radio everywhere you go. And again, it's probably a stalwart at discos and parties and, and gigs. I mean, I'm sure you may have played it a few times. 
Have you? Once or twice. (laughs) (laughs) It's just that party anthem. And again, you know, the minute walked into the studio, Guy Chambers, um, Robbie's producer, played the track down. It was like, oh, God, yeah, what's not to like? This is amazing. And they just wanted that old school kind of 70s party vibe on the track. And we were allowed to be quite creative. I mean, Guy and Robbie knew what they wanted in terms of the parts, but um, we also added lots of fun stuff and Robbie came into the studio and sang with us. And it was just a, a, a great moment. I loved him from the get-go. Just, again, just an extraordinary, his energy and his his vibrance and his zest for life. I think sometimes people are a bit confused by Robbie because they see him as this kind of cheeky chappy, you know, bit cocky, bit, bit arrogant. He's very sensitive and thoughtful about what it is he does, even though he makes it look so easy and so off the cuff. He's he's very serious about his career. And that was just one of those moments, though, that was so much fun. And we just kind of all had such a vibe in the studio. And then it came out and, yeah, the rest again is history. And that lets you join in his touring band, didn't it? Yeah, it did. It's something I really didn't expect I would do because by that time I was a mother of twins and I thought, oh, well, my touring days are probably over. You know, I've probably hung up my boots now. Um, but no, they made me an offer I could not refuse. And uh, I went back on the road and and it was such a lovely experience working with Robbie. And such so different from some of the other artists that I'd worked for because, you know, I'd worked for a lot of kind of rockers and, um, yeah, a lot of kind of like serious rock music, whereas... Rob's was so different and his persona was so different. And again, a a very lovely person. He's interested in in people. He's not self-absorbed. He's wonderful. It's quite interesting you say that because everybody naturally assumes he is. They do. They do. And it's part of this kind of Robbie Williams persona that he's cultivated. The cheeky chappy, the, you know, the kid from, from, from Take That, you know. Um, And sometimes a lot of people have asked me why... Robbie hasn't made it in the States, you know, why he hasn't, he's just conquered all these different territories, but really didn't make the States. And I went over with him a couple of times to, to work on that. And we did some of the sort of big morning shows there to try and, to try and break him. But I just think it's that they don't have the history with Rob. They didn't have take that. They hadn't known Robbie since, since he was 16, you know, and haven't sort of grown up with him in the way we have. And his personality if you don't know that about his personality, that he's always been that sort of cheeky chaffy and a bit naughty and a bit, you know, a bit wild as well. The Americans just kind of never got that history of him. They just never got it. So if you just take Robbie comes into a room and he's cocky and he's all over the place, you're not going to understand the history with it. Um, and I think they just didn't get him. I don't think it was really anything to do with the music. Music was perfectly transferable, if you like, but it was just Robbie they didn't quite get. Maybe they will in future. Don't know. Again, you've got a great team there, Robbie and Guy Chambers. Yeah. Amazing team. What? And they had to test that team too. They had to see whether it would, because I think there's always a point in a team like a Lennon and McCartney and where they always wonder where they begin and the other leaves off, you know, so they have to give it a point where they split up and try it separately. And, um, 
for Rob and Guy, it just seems they work so much better together. So just a winning combination. I'm glad you've mentioned Paul McCartney. You got to know Richard Derbyshire really well. Richard Derbyshire had the band Living in a Box, another great band. But through them, you ended up working with Paul McCartney. Yeah. Or at least through Richard you ended up working with. In fact, both Richards, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, well, actually it came through Richard Niles, who was who was still my husband at the time. And, and he had been asked by Paul to fill in a bit of a George Martin gap for, for Paul. You know, he felt that he was in need of someone who might take a little bit more of an overview of his music. And so Richard uh, was was working with McCartney and um, we did a track. It was actually a gift for Paul's wife at the time, Linda. And it was going to be her 45th birthday and he wanted to make her 45 45s. So he wanted to make her her very own single. And he found a song that Linda's father... It's a, it's a convoluted story, but essentially it was an old song from Linda's childhood that someone who'd come, come to Linda's house once had written for Linda when she was a child. And Paul found it, he bought the rights to it, and we recorded this as a 45 for her 45th birthday. So there are only 45 copies of this thing in the world. And uh, it was a beautiful experience, yeah. And so I called Richard Derbyshire, who's a phenomenal singer, and I said, do you want to do the backing vocals with me? And it was just amazing. I think he nearly died that day. Richard Derbyshire nearly died. <laughs> Meeting Paul McCartney, it was, just, it was just a bit too much for him. He just couldn't cope. I mean, he barely said anything the whole time because I think he was just, his eyes, he looked like he'd been caught in the headlights, Paul Richard. He just could not believe he was in the presence of Paul McCartney. What was Paul McCartney like? Just charming, funny, oh, just great company. Somebody that you would really want to go for dinner with or go to the pub with afterwards. Just And, and the ease at which, you know, in between breaks, I remember when the brass players and the rest of the band had gone off for lunch, we were left in the studio with him and he just picked up a guitar. And, and now thinking about it, he knew the effect this would have on people. He knew so well, but he just picked up a guitar and started strumming Blackbird. And you're like, what? What is this? What? This is insane. You know, for some reason you kind of just didn't imagine him to be so nonchalant. But I think he knew exactly what he was doing because he the reaction from everyone is like, oh, my God. You know, nobody could say it, but everyone was just, yeah, it was, it was incredible. And Richard and I kind of joined in with a few harmonies and all the time we were going, oh, my God, we're singing with Paul McCartney. We're singing with freaking Paul McCartney. You know, it's just not something that happens every day. Nile Rogers and Duran Duran? Yes, my boys. I mean, <laughs> I mean not only Nile Rogers, but Notorious. I mean, ugh, cracking song, amazing song. And it's got Nile Rogers all over it when you listen to it as well. Complete departure from all their previous material. Again, in many ways, it quite possibly put them back on the map and relaunched uh, their career, didn't it? Yeah, I think it did. Uh, they were struggling with their personnel. I don't think they were fully with... Andy Taylor anymore, the guitar player. I think they'd, they'd split. And so they were, it was a, quite a brave choice to do such a funk thing because people didn't really, people thought of the electro pop side of things with um, 
with Duran that they're so famous for. Um, so pairing them with Nile Rodgers was, yeah, a, a genius stroke, I think. And working again with Nile, oh, I just wished I'd done more. I think I only sang on one, possibly two tracks on the album. I just wish there'd be more. But I always laugh about Notorious because there's a <laughs> a feature piece from me at the beginning in the intro. So it goes, no, no, Notorious. And then there's a... <gasps> I'll do that again. <gasps> Promise you, go back and listen to it. It's hilarious. <laughs> it's in the intro. And it... <laughs> so again, it was a, not a track I sang all over, but my sharp intake of breath is there for posterity. I want to talk about another band that I'm a big fan of, especially this album, Tears for Fears and Seeds of Love. Oh, oh my God, yes. Not only is it a phenomenal album, some major songs on there, but the musicians... Phil Collins, Pino Palladino, Nicky Holland, a great keyboard player and songwriter, and Alita Adams. Yeah. I remember the first time I heard Woman in Chains. I th- that was Alita Adams on that, wasn't it? Yeah. And the vocals just... <sighs> oh, God, I'm so with you. I think in some ways the Tears for Fears sessions were so close to my heart. Um, I think from the interview you probably... <laughs> gather that a lot of things were close to my heart, but something, I don't know, I had a real connection with the Tears for Fears boys, particularly Roland and I were great friends. And I spent a long time recording with them because as you know, they liked a, a long, a long record. And those were the, the days as well where record companies would support that to a large degree. Um, you know, sometimes these albums took months and months and months and artists these days don't have quite have the luxury of of that kind of time. But that particular album was just so incredible. Alita, as you say, what a phenomenal artist. And I was lucky enough to work on her solo album as well, which was such an interesting pairing, uh, Roland producing her. And one of the reasons it, I think it worked so well is because she was an R&B artist. And maybe the traditional approach would have been to have gone for an R&B producer, but they didn't. They went for a pop producer in, in Roland and it just worked for me, beautifully, absolutely beautifully. But yeah, the, the Seeds of Love album, wow. Chris Hughes producing. Yeah, dream team, absolute dream team. You recorded some of that at Peter Gabriel's studio as well, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, at Real World. Particularly, I remember Year of the Knife was recorded there. I think that was even, was that Phil Collins on drums? Mm. A seminal piece of work, just a beautiful, beautiful uh, song construction, incredible players, great production. Yeah, another point where the stars aligned and, and great music was made. I'd like to talk about one more collaboration you did with Trevor Horn, and that was the Pet Shop Boys. Had a long association with the Pet Shop Boys, actually. And again, I, I think we touched on it, that fusion of, of Trevor's electronic vision and I should say the Pet Shop Boys electronic vision, because that's very much where they started out. But then fused with orchestral notes and pieces, it was it was so different at the time. Now perhaps it wouldn't sound so different, but then it was very, very different. That music came together and Pet Shop Boys had huge success, huge, huge success. I mean, they were the kind of faces of the 80s, weren't they? They were never off, off the telly and made some some great records, really great records. And, and lyrically, they were always very, very good as well. They had something different to say. 
It's time for a cheeky reminder. If you're enjoying today's episode, please do share it with your friends and family and share it on social media and help us get the word out. And now it's time for the final five. If you were to recommend one album or song, old or new, that you feel everybody should listen to at least once in their lifetime, what would it be and why? It would be, drumroll please, Songs in the Key of Life by Stevie Wonder. I can't think of anyone more groundbreaking, any better songwriter, musician, performer, singer, visionary than Stevie. And that album for me, I think it was where it cemented my love of backing vocals as well, because I think the, I think the album like starts with backing vocals. And I was really miffed the other day. If I may just tell you this story, I watched something, a documentary about the making of songs in the key of life. And they didn't once mention the backing vocalists. Everybody else was mentioned, you know, all the great players that were on it. And yeah, it, it really upset me that, you know, the album Blumen starts with backing vocals and, and, they're, and they're so lush and they're so much a part of Stevie's sound. So much so that he created a group called Wonderlove that, you know, had a rotating bunch of wonderful singers, Sarita and Minnie Ripperton. And um, uh, who's the one who's saying, let's hear it for the boys? Denise Williams. Yeah, so he had this rotating sort of chairs of different singers who would, for, you know, perform in Wonderlove for him. So for me, songs in the key of life, particularly featuring the backing vocals. <laughs> what artists and albums are you currently listening to? Well, a standard. If I can't think of anything to listen to, I will put on my go-to is... Any album by Steely Dan. Yeah, because I always hear something new, something that I haven't heard before and something, it's so complex and I get that, I get why people don't like it. I understand that. But it's my absolute, I, I just, it never gets old to me, whereas other music does, but the, their music doesn't. I always hear something new. It is something I, oh. I've never heard that line before or, you know, it, it's so fresh. I agree with you. It, it doesn't age, yeah. the music, does yeah. it? Yeah. And it was very groundbreaking. And it is that wonderful fusion of jazz and rock. But the writing is... And uh, the, the lead singer, Donald Fagan. Oh, my God. Mad. He's, he's, he's bonkersly good. And also I liked his solo albums as well, actually that he made really nice. The Night Fly is a particular favourite of mine as well. Um, in terms of new music, having 22-year-old kids kind of keeps things a bit fresh. Not that they're living under my roof so much these days because they're off living their lives, but um, they've introduced me to someone called Lennon Stella. And I really like her stuff, really like her stuff. And then there's another artist called, uh, she's she's Portuguese, I think. Uh, and her name is Maro, M-A-R-O, and she's phenomenal. Has this voice, otherworldly kind of voice that feels like it shouldn't belong to her. It's really different. She does a lot of kind of beautiful Latin kind of grooves, which I also love. I'm 
love anything Brazilian. Or... So yeah, Len and Stella, love her, love her too. And I also really like the pop band, the 1975. <laughs> no, I know, but I love pop. You know, that's been my genre for forever, really. So I do love good pop music. And I think they're quite an original sounding band. I don't know if you're familiar with the 1975, but yeah. My family would all like to go in and see them live. So, yeah, that'll be a family outing at some point. Embarrassing for my kids, but, you know, <laughs> I'll try not to do too much dancing. Okay, next question. Name a musician or artist who has had a profound effect on you and why? Okay, I'm going to cheat here a bit because I've worked with them. David Bowie, because he's David Bowie. I think that's the short, the shortest answer I could give to that. I think everyone will get me. Eric Clapton for his extraordinary um, talent and his survival techniques. He's a survivor. So much so. Uh, he's been through terrible, terrible things in his life, but he's still with us and still making beautiful music. And strangely enough, and this is going to, this is a curveball, I'm throwing it right to you now, Petula Clark. Because I worked with her when I was very young, probably about 19 years old. And the first time I ever sang with an orchestra was working with Petula Clark. I didn't get her music really in that it wasn't the era that I was listening to. I didn't listen to her. I mean, I knew Downtown. Who doesn't know Downtown? Great song, great kind of classic piece from the 1960s, but it wasn't my music. It wasn't music I grew up listening to. I grew up listening to the music of the 70s, really. But what I learned from Petula, I was about to say peculiar, Petula was the art of storytelling and, and how to hold an audience in the palm of your hands. The music may not have been as relatable as I say, but her artistry, and what she was able to do and what I saw in an audience and how they reacted to her and how she commanded was something that I never forgot. And I learned so much from just listening to her, being around her. She's, she's well over 80, probably up into her 90s now, still working. She's a force of nature. She is an absolutely phenomenal, and she's come through movies. She's done musical theater. She made, she had such a huge impact in the 1960s. She was very much a part of it. And so for me, yeah, I would say Petula was a very, very important figure in my life and, and someone that I learned an awful lot from. If it was possible for you to speak to your younger self when you were first setting out, what advice would you give to yourself then? Don't be hard on yourself. You're learning. You don't know everything. Your mistakes are as vital a part of you as your successes because you probably learn more from your mistakes than you do from your successes. So, Speak your truth. You know, if you've got something to say, be brave, say it. Speak your truth, sing your truth, perform your truth if you're, if you're an artist. And understand that that's going to differentiate you from other people out there. 
And one thing I know from having my own kids, a lot of young people don't want to stick their heads above the parapet and be noticed because they're trying to fit in. They're trying to find out who they are. And so very often it's quite hard to speak your truth and quite hard to be brave and and try and recognize what it is in you that makes you different. And I say this to a lot of up and coming artists now, because you have to differentiate yourself because there are so many numbers of people out there trying to do what you're doing. So yeah, be brave, be kind to yourself. If you make mistakes, it doesn't matter. Put them aside. Don't dwell, move on. You know, you've got so much life ahead of you that don't worry about little things that happen and don't get caught up in them and just be brave and 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 be you. Do you feel that you were hard on yourself when you were first uh, starting out? Were you very critical? In some ways, yes. I think we all have that little man on the shoulder that that critiquing, you know, you're not good enough or that could have been better. You could have done that differently. We all have that. But because of the kind of support I had around me, I wasn't crippled by self-doubt. I had my moments, definitely. But I also knew that I could overcome them and I didn't let them hold me back. So any doubts I did have, you know, I tried to, as, as my daughters would say, suck it up and, you know, <laughs> attempt to move forward because for some people and our young people nowadays are so... Um, troubled by anxieties and worries and depression. And I think to a large degree, I grew up in a different time as well. You know, I didn't have the internet. Social media, I'm sure, plays a large part. Social media, you know, as much as, as I love it, I also hate it because I hate what it's, I hate that the balance isn't there, that it's, uh, that young people are too defined by what they see on it. But ultimately, yeah, I, I, I did. I did have uh, doubts, most definitely, but I had enough people around me that I believed in. And I think that's also the thing about being younger, is surround yourself with good people. Get a bit of a radar for who the good people are. And if you sense that they're not great, you know, they might just, even if it's, again, it's about being brave, isn't it? About saying no to some certain things. And that's very hard when you're younger. But if you do get that little nagging voice in the back of your head that says, hmm, this might not be the best way to go, you know, listen to it. Listen to it because it's seldom wrong. Of all the times over the years that you performed, name one event or show that always stays with you. Live Aid. Yeah, I don't think it's going to surprise anyone to hear that that's that's something I return to so so many times. But then other things as well, performing at Shea Stadium with the police was kind of mad and, and crazy. But then those extraordinary moments that we've talked about, being in the studio, hearing songs for the first time, such a privilege. You know, you're literally the first ears probably in a, in a handful of people in the entire world to hear something and then to be able to contribute to it. Oh, that is just the best feeling in the world. Just the best. So I do return to those moments of 
you know, as we discussed walking into to Mayfair Studios and hearing what's love got to do with it and and then being able to talk to people like yourself, you know, about those moments that have made my life so incredibly special for me. And 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 again, I, I sorry I say it too much, but that I'm extraordinarily grateful for um having had Okay, let's talk about your book Backtrack, The Voice Behind Music's Greatest Stars. When did you decide to write that book and why? I moved to South Africa and I spent 10 years there. And essentially I wasn't really working. I was supporting my husband in his endeavours and bringing up the kids. And that was a really lovely thing to be able to do, honestly. But I remember I was talking to a friend of mine who came around to help me with some interior design in my house. I was having, you know, had some questions about what I should do, colours, blah, blah, blah. And and um, she came into my office and she said, What's, what are these boxes in here? And I said, oh, they're just boxes full of memorabilia. You know, they're just, she said, sorry, what? I said, yeah, yeah, I used to be a singer. She said, oh, okay, can I see them? So she pulled these things out, you know, gold records, discs, the tour passes, you know, all the kind of ephemera and memorabilia from my life. Basically, these these are kind of my life in two boxes. And um and she said, what are they doing in a box? Oh, my God. She said, these should be, you don't need me to put paint on the wall. You need to put these on the wall. You've had a phenomenal career. And I, I really, it was really a moment where I thought, well, actually, she's right. You know, I, I'm so close to it because I've lived it. I don't see what other people see. And it was the first time I thought, you know what? I'm here. I'm not working. I need to go back. I need to backtrack. And that was it. That was the beginning of the realization that I need to do this, even if it's for my kids, you know, if nobody ever, ever reads it. At least it's a, a document of, um, of, my, of my time, of my life. One final question for you. Is there anything else I should have asked today that <laughs> I haven't? You know, I love to talk about some of the misconceptions about what I do in my job. And I, I touched on that earlier about the fact that sometimes people aren't entirely sure what backing singers do. And probably, the, I mean, I've touched on it already. It's just that sometimes, particularly also kids, they want to aim for the top spot. So they think that success means being a star. Success to me and I don't know how you feel about this, Mark, but I have a feeling you might feel the same way, is having one job after another. doesn't really matter what the job is. As long as you can continue to sustain a career in music, I think it's very important to just um, understand that playing the supportive role, we're not all built to be stars either. We don't have, we're not all built with the capacity to do that, we're all different. I think what I love to say to people about what I do is that I have had the best job in the world supporting others. And there are so many hundreds and thousands of jobs in life that are built around not being stars. You know, look at the film industry. When you, whenever you see those rolls of credits after a movie, you think, wow, all of those people made the sum of its parts you know, and made this thing an incredible piece. And it's so worthy to be part of something bigger. So for kids, yeah, it's, it's great to be a star. Sure, there are, there are perks, but, but you might 
crash and burn. You might have a short-lived career as a star. If you really want a career in music too, you know, there's nothing wrong with supporting others. Well, I was going to say, you've kind of got the best of both worlds or you've had the best of both because you've been there, you've done it all, yet you can still walk down the high street. I can still go out in my onesie with no makeup on. (laughs) Nobody knows who I am. And that feels good. It's sometimes lovely to be, as I am talking to you, you know, to be able to share those things about my career and talk about things, you know, it's, it's lovely. Don't get me wrong. It's not that I don't like to be asked these things. I do. I love to share it. But um, yeah, I think I had the best of both worlds. Absolutely. Tessa, it's been fantastic today. Thank you so much for your time. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you for asking me and thank you for such insightful questions. And just, I've enjoyed it so much. Thank you. Well, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. Tessa, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a privilege. And of course, as always, a big thank you to you, our listeners. I'm afraid that's it. That is the end of Series 1. Can you believe it? It has flown by and I've enjoyed every minute of it. If you've enjoyed the series as well, please do share your favourite episodes on social media with your friends and family and help us get talked to the band out there. We'll be back in the new year with a brand new series and new guests. But between now and then, we've got a special bonus episode coming up for you in two weeks' time, just in time for Christmas. Hopefully we'll see you then. Take care. Bye-bye.